Father, we thank you for your word to us. Help us to hear what you are saying. Amen. If only. The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron in um, chapter 16, verse 3 of what we've just read. If only. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. If only. This circumstance we find ourselves in now is so bad, so awful. They say to Moses and Aaron that we might as well have stayed in Egypt. We would have been better off there. The outcome for us would have been the same, would have died. But at least in Egypt, we'd have died with plenty to eat, they say. And I wonder, have you ever found yourself in a place of such suffering, such struggle, such depression, such hardship, that you have said something similar to yourself or to God? For all the good this has done me, I might as well have, well, might as well have what? Well, maybe I might as well have stayed in that city I hated. Uh, at least I had a few good friends there. Or I might as well have stayed in that mind-numbing job. At least the salary was decent. I might as well have stayed in that difficult relationship. I'd have been unloved either way. Or I might as well have stayed single or not tried to have children. At least then I wouldn't have known the heartache of fertility struggles or the pain that being a parent can bring. Or maybe you've never felt like that. That's great. But, but still, listen in this morning, because maybe one day you will. And it's good to be prepared. And whether this passage uh, that we've just read is one you need right now, or one to um, put in your back pocket for harder times in the future, it, it is one that is filled with encouragement. And it, it feels like a far cry, doesn't it, this passage, from where we were last Sunday from God's people singing and dancing, filled with praise for how God had rescued them through the sea. Just three verses after Miriam's song in 15 verse 21, we get 15 verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses. 16 verses 2 and 3, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Chapter 17, verse 3, the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And it feels like a far cry from the, the tambourines and the harmonies of last week's song. And how, we wonder, how could they have come so far and yet learn so little? How could they, having seen all that they had seen, still doubt God? Did they really think that death in the desert was all that God had planned for them? How could they come so far and yet have learnt so little? But before we judge them too quickly, we should pause and ask ourselves, would we really have done that much better 
would we really have been so much more faithful, patient, trusting, if it had been us? Do we experience the Christian life as one of carefree confidence and complaint-free trust in the Lord? I know I don't. I would suggest that, that we're all, even those of us who are, who are glass half full people, are a little more prone to complaining than we might like to think, even if we tend to keep it in the quiet of our hearts. And before we go any further, I think we must acknowledge as we begin, not only that we grumble, but that, as Moses painfully points out in chapter 16, verse 8, our grumbling against our circumstances our leaders, our government, our bosses, our parents, our spouses, whoever it may be, it is really grumbling against God. But as we look at these chapters together now, we're going to focus not upon the grumbling, but upon God's response to it. For that is where Moses, the presumed writer of Exodus, focuses his attention. And we see in, in these four stories a cycle, the, the same cycle repeating itself. At number one, the Israelites hit a problem. Uh, in the first three, uh, that's a lack of food or drink. In the final one, it's an enemy attack. At number two, they complain against God, although in the final cycle, interestingly, they don't. And number three, God graciously provides for them with bitter waters made pure. Bread and meat falling from the sky, water springing from a rock, a miraculous victory. In each of those cycles, we see God do two things. We see God graciously provide for his people, and we see God test his people. We see God graciously provide for his people, and we see God test his people. First, God graciously provides for his people. Why? To show them that he is their God. God graciously provides for his people to show that he is their God. Look down with me again at um, chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. I wonder how you might have been tempted to respond to the Israelites' complaint if you were God. Me? I think I'd have been pretty tempted to turn them right back around on the road back to Egypt or to have summoned the Egyptian army against them. You would rather have died in Egypt? Fine, that can be arranged. But look down with me at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Feel the beauty, the poetry, the abundance of that response. No ticking off, no command that they need to learn some gratitude or warning that this is their last chance. Not a hint of anger, frustration or irritation. Just abundant, beautiful, gracious provision. Grace upon grace. In response to their grumbling against him, God graciously provides for his people. And it's exactly the same in the other three episodes in these chapters. For God's provision is, is two Ps. His provision is plentiful 
and his provision is personal. First, God's provision is plentiful. What we see in God's raining bread down from heaven, we see in each of these miracles, we see a provision that is abundant, either in its amount or in how long it goes on for. And it's hard to imagine for those of us for whom the next meal is um, five minutes down the road at the corner shop and for whom clean water pours out of our kitchen taps. And those of us for whose enemies, if we have any, are probably people we've never met on Twitter, not armed warriors standing in front of us. It's hard to imagine how wonderful it must have been to receive these miracles. To have your desperate thirst, the result of three days trekking in the desert, satisfied not only as you lap up the water that is now swallowable at Mara in chapter 15, verse 25, but as you discover Elim, verse 27, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Or, or to step out of your home one morning, your stomach cramped from days of being empty, and see a layer of food miraculously hidden under the morning dew. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. A feast that would turn out to be God's day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, provision for you for the next 40 years. Verse 35. Or to see an enemy pushed back not by the might of your swords or the strength of your prowess, but by the arms of your leader raised to the Lord and the promise that you need never fear these people. Chapter 17, verse 14. God's provision is plentiful, abundant in amount and abundant in duration. And second, God's provision is personal. God is explicit about his purpose in providing for his people. It's not simply to keep them quiet as a concession because he feels he must. Look down at chapter 16 verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. God provides so plentifully for his people to show them who he is, that they might know him better and know that he is with them, that they might know that he is God, the only God and their God. And not only that, but a verse or two earlier in verse 10, he shows them his glory in the cloud. In 17, verse 6, he himself stands with them at the rock at Horeb. God's provision is personal. This isn't just pop a check in the post, send an automated email of thanks. But this is a personal God, personally providing for his people, showing that he is with them and that he cares for them. And of course, we as Christians in 2021 know God's plentiful and personal provision far better than they. For where they have bread come down from heaven, we have had God's own son come down from heaven in the person 
of Jesus. Jesus told the crowds uh, in John 6, verse 32, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the same Jesus offers us living waters. In John 7, verse 37, the water I give, he promised the woman at the well in John 4, will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus himself is the rock. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, who provided for his people in the desert and provides for his people today. We as Christians, know God's plentiful and personal provision far better than they. But what does all this mean, all these metaphors? I mean, it was simple for them. They, they needed literal food and water to survive. And so God sent them food and water. But, but how are we, who get our daily bread from Tesco, our water from the kitchen taps, how are we to understand these promises, this offer? Well, you could write a book to try to answer that question. But let me just very briefly say that just as bread is the vital ingredient, the essential element of the human life, known the world over and eaten in almost every culture, just, just as bread is the one thing we need to continue living day by day. So that is how we are to see Jesus. And particularly, that is how we are to see his body broken on the cross for us. The one thing we need, the essential element. And not just a physical life now. But of life in eternity. That's what we've been given in Jesus. Everything we need, abundantly so, for life in the here and now and for all of eternity. I wonder, I wonder what you feel you lack. What present circumstances or struggles make you look back and say, if only, I might as well have. What is it that you long for in God's provision and feel you lack? Perhaps it's something relational. You long for deeper friendships and more of them, for more community in your life. Or family. You long to be married, to have children, to see your loved ones free from suffering. Or health, the spiritual, physical health, to do more than just get by day to day. Or something more practical, a home to call your own, or one that's fit for purpose, or a job that means something. Or maybe you simply feel you lack reasons to get out of bed in the morning a sense of purpose, of direction. Well, you, if you are a Christian today, can trust your saviour. God has given you what you need and he has given you everything you need in Jesus, abundantly so, for life in the here and now and for all of eternity. That does not mean it will always be easy. That you'll always feel as if you're rolling in blessings. 
but you can trust him. You don't need to fear or look back. He will give you what you need. If you haven't come to him before, let me encourage you to consider that. Because there was no other food, no other water in the wilderness for the Israelites to live off. It was accept God's offer, or it was staff. What God had to offer wasn't, wasn't one of many good options. It was the only option. If you wanted to survive. And so Jesus' body broke his death on the cross. Well, it's not one of many ways to God. It's the only way to God. God has given us everything we need. So take it. Keep taking it. There's no need to doubt. There's no need to grumble. God graciously provides for his people to show that he is their God. Second, God lovingly tests his people. Why? To see whether they will trust that he is their God. God lovingly tests his people to see whether they will trust that he is their God. Twice in these chapters, did you spot? And Moses, the presumed author, tells us that God tested his people. It's in 15 verse 25 and 16 verse 4. And let's read 16 verse 4 again. And notice as we read how quickly God's explanation that he will test his people follows from his promise of gracious provision. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. A Sabbath test is to be instituted. Five days a week, they must collect enough and just enough bread for their household for one day. If they take extra or try to keep it overnight, it will breed maggots and stink. 16 verse 20. But on the sixth day, they must gather double. And this time, it will last. No maggots, no smell. For on the seventh day, they are to rest. There will be no manna. And the instructions and the implementation of this test and the disobedience of some of them in verse 20, verse 27. Well, that's why this second miracle takes a whole chapter to relate. So, so what is this testing? How are we to understand this emphasis placed upon their need to obey? For it rankles, does it not, with the gospel of grace, with faith and faith alone? with salvation as a free gift from God, that their obedience is then tested by God? Well, let me say that this obedience is not a matter of earning their salvation or of God tempting them to sin. Rather, it is an opportunity to display their trust in God. It is an opportunity to show that they trust God and to know the blessings that are to be found in that. 
for it is abundantly clear with these four miracles that there is nothing Israel have done or could have done to achieve their salvation. Just as they did not send the plagues upon Egypt, pass over their own houses, or make the Red Sea part in two. Well, they could not make bread fall from the sky, water turn pure or appear from rocks, or armies be defeated. The power, strength, and might to save them was entirely God's. And the salvation has already occurred. Notice the order. The miracle has been promised in the case of the man. It's occurred in the case of the purified water. The obedience uh, was to follow God's powerful act to save them, not to be the condition for God's act to save them. No. Obedience here wasn't about saving them. It was about showing that they were trusting God to save them. Trusting that if they took a double portion on the sixth day, as he had said, it wouldn't be rotten the following morning, despite that being what would happen every other day of the week. Trusting that what God had said he would do, though it sounded implausible. And I wonder, I wonder whether we get a bit confused when it comes to faith. I wonder, as we reflect on these verses, whether we sometimes make faith a bit too abstract, too cerebral, perhaps especially in a city like Oxford, as if faith is all, and in fact is only, about what we think in our heads, a set of beliefs that we subscribe to, doctrines we accept, terms and conditions that we click on, and not something that makes a difference in our daily lives, something that is a day-in, day-out decision to trust God and not ourselves or anything else. Because faith isn't just in our heads. It can't be. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. James writes in James 2, verses 17. Faith that is just in our heads is no faith at all. And Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, teaches us that God does not just want our brains, our mental assent. He wants all of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And perhaps Christians in other less privileged parts of the world would have something to teach us on this. Because I think we find this particularly hard to understand. Living in a land where, for most of us, probably all of us, our daily bread lives in our cupboard. Where a lack of clean waters unlikely to last more than an hour or so until Thames water have sorted themselves out. Where the worst our enemies are likely to do is send us an unpleasant message. I sometimes wonder whether I rely on God day to day at all, or whether I simply rely on myself, my bank balance, my employers, my friends, my family, my government. Perhaps there's some repentance for us to do of our self-sufficiency as we reflect on this passage together. One thing I've been trying to do recently is um, pray the Lord's Prayer each day, um, just before lunch. Um, please ask me how it's going next time you see me. 
And to begin with, I found it hard to pray the line, give us this day our daily bread, with much enthusiasm, because it felt unnecessary. It felt redundant. Praying for God's will to be done, yes, I'll do that. I can ad-lib on that one for ages. But my daily bread, this day, every day, I mean, I've got a week's worth of food in the fridge already. But the more I prayed that line, the less it's felt like a hassle and the more it's begun to feel like a relief and a blessing to remember that it is not actually my debit card that I can trust to provide the food I need, but my God. For faith is not, all, not just all in our heads. It's not just what we think, what we say we believe. Faith is our active daily decisions to trust in God in ways that are hard, when we would rather trust in something else, or when we don't want to trust at all. Perhaps there's an area in your life where God uh, wants to teach you to trust him. A blessing he's asking you to do without. A comfort he has taken away. An idol he's trying to wrest out of your hands that you might better learn to trust him and not that thing and not yourself. In Exodus 15 to 17, it says, put your faith in God. He will provide for you. He has given you and will give you everything you need in Jesus. Faith in Christ is faith well placed. Let's pray. Father, we repent of our grumbling and our dissatisfaction and our distrust in you. And we thank you that we can be confident in you, just as these Israelites saw your provision in the wilderness. So we could be confident that you have provided everything we need in Jesus and you will sustain us. Amen.